It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, you better think. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, hey, everybody. Hey. Last time we were in the podcast studio, which in reality was a few minutes ago. Right. We never left. Peek behind the curtain. We talked about the differences between brains and computers. A lot of times. a lot of them. Yeah. A lot of times people talk about one sort of using the other as a metaphor for it. Like the brain is like a big computer or computers are thinking. You might say that. Right. And it seems like a really good metaphor on the surface. But when you get down into the nitty gritty of how each one works, they are incredibly different. Yeah. So they have some similarities. They both process information. They both store information, have memory. They both can perform logic. They they both uh, they both use electricity, let's say. Yep. They, there are a lot of they have input and output, but they're fundamentally different in yeah. a lot of other ways. Yeah. Fundamentally different, and, and especially in the fact that 
we really understand how computers encode information and we don't fully understand all the ins and outs of how information functions in the brain. But we do know a lot about things brains are good at that computers aren't good at. Sure. And we talked about some of those in the last podcast. For example, brains are more energy efficient than computers for the amount of processing they do. Brains are much more versatile than computers. So a computer might very be able to very quickly execute a very specific pre-programmed set of instructions, but brains can learn how to do new things. They can adapt to new scenarios. Mm -hmm. They can reprogram themselves to do a task better. Computers can't do any of this without specific, you know, augmentation to allow them to do it. Right. So we want to talk today about how we can make computers more like brains. Yeah. uh, This is not a new idea. Um, People have been, I mean, we've had discussions about this. Even, even Turing had, some thoughts about how a computer could at least simulate intelligence enough for it to seem like it was thinking like a person. Uh, now, in that case, he was really talking about uh, kind of a, a simulation, the idea that if it's simulated so close to human behavior that we might as well uh, assume it has intelligence. We're not necessarily talking intelligence here in the sense of a, a self-aware thinking machine. We're talking about giving a computer some capabilities that are uh, that come very easily to brains, but not so easily to computers. Yeah, I think the, the difference between this and the kind of artificial intelligence we talk about in the Turing test is that's more like the appearance of intelligence. Right. This is working like a brain works. Yeah. So if you were, example, uh, teaching a computer how to recognize certain phrases spoken out loud, and then you had someone else come in who was a different age, gender, and perhaps even a different dialect say that same phrase, the computer would still be able to pick up on it, uh, even though the phonetics might be remarkably different. different. Yeah. So people, we're pretty good at this, not depending on where you are. You might, if you're in Yorkshire and you happen to be from the South, you might not understand a word anyone is saying. I I maintain that no one in Yorkshire understands what anyone else is saying. But, <laughs> but if you're a computer, I mean, these... Issues can become difficult even with subtle changes. So yeah, it's well, it's not just sounds like that. Yeah. One of the other things I should have mentioned at the beginning that uh, human brains are very good at that computers are not very good at is dealing with real world data. Mm-hmm. So computers do great jobs with data that's like a formatted, structured set of number values. They do not do a great job with, say, a visual image or right. a sound or, uh, you know, the, the feeling of a, of a touch. All that has to be translated into digital language for the computer. It just doesn't work intuitively like it does for us. It's also really bad at making associations between things without you having built an in- entire uh, ontology to teach it what things are and their relationships to each other. So making a computer think more or perhaps work more like a brain has a lot of uh, a lot of of appeal to it. And like I said, this this appeal goes back quite a ways. In fact, John von Neumann you know, in our last podcast, we talked about von Neumann architecture and the fact that the, the your basic computer today is based on von Neumann architecture. This idea of essentially a CPU and RAM. That's that's your basic when you boil it all down. That's what it comes down to. Um, he actually was working on a book. And the book was titled The Computer and the Brain. He passed away before finishing it. 
But even then, uh, he was sort of looking at the the differences between computers and brains and how could you perhaps start to close the gap between the two. Uh, <laughs> in which way? Well, in, in the way of making computers more like brains, not okay. brains more like computers. He wasn't suggesting <laughs> that's that worth we, saying. He wasn't suggesting that we all have positronic brains installed in our heads. Um, Some people would like that world. I just thought we should be clear. Yeah, uh, that's fair. It's fair. Uh, the clarification has been made. We like clarity. Uh, then we also have uh, Professor Carver Mead of the California Institute of Technology, who began to experiment with designing computer chips that were inspired by brains, and he called them neuromorphic chips. We'll be talking a lot about those today. And one of his collection of transistors mimicked how our brains process visual data, and it actually allowed him to create a computer that could recognize the edges of objects in an image. So being able to tell where uh, one object ends and something else begins, whether that's just space or another object or whatever, uh, which, again, very easy for humans to do, not necessarily easy for a machine to do. You know, you have to figure no. out how to how how do you have the machine identify that? Actually, very difficult for machines. Yeah. to do. Uh, so his work emulated brains, but didn't simulate them. And he also admitted that his work was much harder than he anticipated and that achieving a brain like computer system was a non-trivial challenge that was going to require uh, a lot of innovation because you could brute force it. And as in other words, you could you could use a lot of uh, classic processors to carry that heavy load. But that defeats the purpose. The whole purpose of making a brain-like computer is so that you can take advantage of the brain's properties, including that amazing energy efficiency. It right. doesn't do you any good if you are able to brute force your way into behaving kind of like a brain, but you're you need an entire the, building worth yeah. of, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, every time you turn it on, all the lights in the neighboring houses go, whoom, where do they fade out for a moment? Like, up, oh, it's crunching numbers again. That's not useful. So that, that would be, uh, you know, that was in the 1980s. And there were some, like I said, some success. Skipping way ahead, uh, there are a lot, a lot more work's been done in the fairly recent past. Back in 2008, DARPA announced the Synapse program with the goal to break free from von Neumann architecture and create a new model of computer design. So this is uh, about as dramatic a departure as you can imagine for computer science. You're talking about not just getting away from that CPU and RAM model, but possibly getting away from binary data entirely. So that's, I mean, that's, that's so different from what we've been doing that it's, uh, it's, it's completely revolutionary. I mean, there's really hard to, it's hard to imagine it just because we've been relying on computers so long that are stuck on this binary system. Uh, binary, just zeros and ones. Uh, or off and on switches, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, so, in, in a broader category, you could just think about it not in terms of binary, but just digital data of any kind. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I mean, with binary specifically, you're talking about uh, your basic unit has two states. Yeah. Right. That's that's what you're limited to. You can't have any more than two states. And that's one thing that DARPA was saying. Let's try and get away from that. Let's look at a way of doing computation where we're not limited by this two state of your basic unit, uh, which is incredible. I mean, it it requires a total different approach. Reconstruction. To right. Now, 2011, IBM unveiled the first Synapse chips that could play Pong. Well, come on now. They couldn't just play Pong. They actually could learn how to play. Right. Pong. They, you, so. You sit your little brother or little, little sister down at a video game 
And because you're mean, you don't tell them how to play and you yeah. just keep beating them over and over at Mortal Kombat or whatever. <laughs> Eventually, they figure out how to play. They might not be real good, but they figure out what the buttons do right. and, and how to win. And because That's, they're younger than you are, they've got amazing Twitch skills, and eventually they dominate you in every game, and then you just don't want to play right. ever Killer again. combo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a killer instinct. Right. Yeah. That's what this computer did at Pong. They, they sat it down. They were mean to it. They didn't tell it how to play. They just let it know when it was doing good or doing bad. Right. If it, if it blocked the ball, then it got essentially a little bit of a reward, like, good job. And if it let the ball go by and, uh, and fly past and, uh, the opponent got a, a point. It essentially got a message saying, you're not doing so well. And so it began to learn that what it was supposed to do was block the ball from going in. And so it got better and better and better at doing that. So in, in human terms, that sounds kind of trivial because we can all do that. But in a computer, that's a big deal. Yeah. The idea of learning computers could very well revolutionize the kinds of jobs computers can do. And uh, another example they had, which, you know, is, is less trivial than learning to play Pong, is they had uh, this these kind of chips as a guidance system, part of a guidance system for a, a flying drone that could just follow a yellow line, uh, specifically yellow lines on a road. And so it could actually follow along a road and stay on track because it knew to recognize this particular yellow line and that that was the course it was supposed to follow. So it was able to, you know, observe an environment and identify the important feature of that environment and follow that feature, which, again, something very easy for humans to do. You tell a human, as long as they have their senses and you tell a human, hey, you need to do when when you see or experience this, you need to do this. It's very easy for a machine, not necessarily that easy. Well, like us in navigating the real world, computers like these are learning not just being told what to do, but figuring out what it is they need to do. Yeah. So 2013, so very recent past, HRL built a chip that can alter the connections between neurons, synthetic neurons in this uh, in this chip. And it's similar to the way the brain can change synapses. So it learns, quote unquote, like a brain. It's able to make these connections that are uh, emulating what happens within a human brain. Now, keep in mind, as we said before, we still don't fully understand all the complexity that is the human brain and the human nervous system and and how we think. We're still learning quite a bit about that. But by emulating some of the physical processes, we're starting to see some improvements in things like energy efficiency for specific types of computer tasks. Yeah. Well, there are also very large scale adaptations that are being made in computers to make them more like brains. Uh, for example, you've got neural networks. Are you familiar with this concept? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in your brain, you have a neural network. You have a network of neurons and there are these nerve cells that are connected in tons of different ways all throughout your brain, sending signals back and forth to each other. And somehow this process, uh, though that's a very simple representation of it, there, there are other kinds of cells and things going on too. Somehow this whole process creates thinking. Right. It manifests itself in thought. Right. An artificial neural network tries to use some of the same basic concepts to make a computer or network of computers work more like a brain. So neural networks are systems of interconnected nodes that simulate, each node simulates the behavior of a neuron. Mm -hmm. In basic terms, neurons in the brain receive a signal, and if the signal is strong enough, they pass that signal along to other neurons. 
artificial neuron nodes receive, quote, weighted signals, and they receive them from lots of other nodes. And then the weighting system determines whether or not that signal gets passed along to the next layer of nodes or to a final output node. Mm-hmm. And so these networks are very good at things like pattern recognition and learning how to deal with new types of data sets. And when spread out across lots of different processors, uh, artificial neural networks are very good at processing huge amounts of data very quickly. Yeah. So an example of this is Google Brain. You may have heard of that. That was Uh, a hush-hush Google X project, right? Yeah, one of many. Uh, neural network approach, just like you were saying. So it uses thousands of computers to mimic the synaptic connections in our brains and relies on simple sets of rules, also called algorithms. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's relying on that to learn on its own. So the example everyone loves to mention, you'll see it all over the Internet because it's the Internet, <laughs> is that it learned what a cat was by <laughs> scanning thousands of pictures of cats. Now, it had been told. The term cat. Yeah. It had to be. It did not realize it didn't see tens of thousands of pictures of cats and, and say, come up with the that word is cat. a cat. Like it could have just as easily said that is a bucket. Um, <laughs> but, that's, a, well, that's a different meme entirely. Yeah. No, the, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> it involves walruses. Yeah. Yeah. No, the amazing thing about it is that that it was able to isolate the visual concept of a cat on its own. And then be able to identify a cat, even if it was a cat that was not among the pictures it had already scanned. Yeah. A totally new cat in a a video or a picture. Exactly. So you could show it a a picture of a cat it had never seen before, but because it now knew what the concept of a cat was, it could identify that as a cat. Uh, Yeah. One of the people behind this project was uh, gave a quote saying that it basically invented the concept of a cat cat, which is kind of true. Like it, it had to just I, I thought of it and, and I wrote this in the video. Don't know whether you said these words or not, but I thought about it I sort of in the in the terms of uh, like a naturalist surveying new animal or plant species. Sure. You would you would look for patterns mm-hmm. and you're not being told what new species to look for. But by observing enough of them, you'd say, "Okay, I'm seeing all these similarities with slight variations. This must be a species. Right. And here's another species that's kind of the same but different. And you're creating these categories in your mind without direction from the top. You're just taking in lots of data and figuring out what to do with it. And that's what these neural networks are really good at. Yeah. So uh, now. What they're not necessarily good at is being super energy efficient because, no. like I said, we're talking thousands of computers this, acting. As how neurons. many was it? Sixteen thousand computers to figure out what a cat was. Uh, <laughs> something. I like think it was that. sixteen thousand. It was. Um, so we're talking about a very energy hungry approach here because each computer is behaving as a neuron. It's not like we're, we've you know, distilled the neuron down to an element that's on a transistor. No, we're talking about individual computers acting as a neuron. So uh, yeah. you, you can also simulate them within a computer, but this is far less powerful. Right. If you simulate within a computer, you better have packed a lunch and <laughs> yeah. for the next like several months. It's not because, as fast that way. No, it's incredibly slow. Simulating these things, making virtual brains, which people have tried to do, uh, even on a small scale, requires an enormous amount of processing power. Because again, 
that simulation is resting upon a classical computer approach. It's not something that's uh, broken free of that von Neumann architecture. It's just right. resting on top of it. Um, one of the guys working on, or at least working with some of the people who are working on Google Brain, is our friend Ray Kurzweil. Yay. Singularity dude. Go Ray. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, a pioneer <laughs> in the, in the field of voice recognition software as well as other, uh, artificial intelligence developments. And he's working with Google, uh, not necessarily on Google brain, at least the interview I read, it seemed to me that he was work, you know, some of his colleagues were working on Google brain and perhaps he had worked on some things that are, are related to it. His natural language work is something that could be very useful in uh, and certain approaches with a neural network. So, yeah. you know, it's related to, but not necessarily directly overlapping the project. Another project that I wanted to mention along these lines is an open source one called NEST, uh, which stands for Neural Simulation Technology, that started coming together in the mid-1990s and, and studies large networks like the brain and, and tries to write flexible emulators for the brain for, for general research use. Uh, it's something that I ran across while I was in the rabbit hole of all of this research, and I thought that it was really neat that it's you know working towards giving researchers better tools for studying this kind of stuff. That's pretty cool. Totally. Okay, let, let's zoom in a little bit because uh, we, we're talking about these sort of artificial constructs like neural artificial neural networks that you know, take place plus across a lot of computers or in some virtual simulation inside a computer. Mm -hmm. Can we make the actual hardware in your device work physically more like a brain does? That is the million-dollar question and, in fact, is the thing that I think is the the most important if you want to capture the energy efficiency angle here, mm -hmm. right? If it works more like a brain, then it's going to require far less power than trying to simulate what a brain does using this other architecture. Uh, well, based on some really cutting-edge research, I think the answer is yes overall. Uh, there's there's a project at IBM right now? Yeah, the neurosynaptic chips. Uh, we mentioned that just the the beginning in the timeline, but... We're looking at things like collections of 6,000 transistors copying the electrical spiking behavior of a neuron. So 6,000 transistors is nothing. I mean, you look at a microprocessor right now, and there could be more than a billion transistors on that single one-inch silicon chip. But usually transistors are not modeling spiking behavior. No, they aren't. But what I'm, I, the only point I'm making is that we're talking much smaller now. Before, oh, yeah, yeah. before we were talking massive networks of individual computers. Now we're talking about discrete elements that you would find within a computer that are mimicking the behavior of a neuron, specifically because of the way they've been engineered. It's not like, you know, you've hit a little switch like, oh, now the transistor thinks like a brain. No, it's because it's been specifically engineered that way. So yeah, it copies this electrical spiking behavior and the the collection of transistors are wired together to make a system of synthetic neurons. So using these chips was a little complicated when they first showed them off. The team had to simulate a physical chip with a virtual chip inside a computer program, then port that configuration over onto the physical hardware that they had built. And that chip allowed programmers to create protocols so that a computer could learn how to recognize handwritten numbers or... Play Pong. This is the Pong playing chip we talked about at the right. top of the podcast. So, but it could also learn like if, if you show a computer, like you've got some optical recognition software. This is something else Kurzweil worked on optical recognition software in your computer and you show it a picture of a six, the, the number six that has been printed in a specific font. 
and then show it another number six that either someone has handwritten or it has been printed in a different font, the computer may have trouble identifying it because it's not exactly what you showed it the first time. But let's say it really, really wants to leave a spam comment in the comment section on your article. How can it get past this problem? Well, using this approach with neurosynaptic <laughs> chips, it could definitely help because, like I said, they were able to use this this network to create a uh, a program that was able to recognize digits that had been drawn, even if they had totally different people drawing them in different styles. Uh, they were still able to have this machine recognize what that number was. So really, when you look at it, this particular type of machine would it's be the end of CAPTCHA, end of CAPTCHA, which, <laughs> by the way, the, the people who created CAPTCHA are pretty much OK with because they said that the reason a stopgap. Yeah, yeah. And not only it was a stopgap, but it was something that pushed forward the development of artificial intelligence because they said we had to create a thing that was difficult for machines to do, but easy for humans to do. And really what that does is it points out, hey, machines are really bad at this one particular task. How can we make machines better at doing that? And so while it's kind of irritating for anyone who wants to have controls on their site so they don't get hit by spam content, uh, it is very reassuring for anyone in the artificial intelligence field because it shows that progress is being made. So a double-edged sword, I guess we could say. But at any rate... Uh, the whole idea was to emulate the brain's ability to make lots of those synaptic connections at once. And the current state of the art involves organizing neurosynaptic cores onto a grid to create a synthetic cortex. So IBM's neuromorphic programming architecture is based off modular blocks of code called corelets. And programmers can choose corelets from a predetermined menu and choosing the type of program for specific tasks like image recognition or audio recognition. So that stuff, you know, the stuff's already been built by IBM so that people who want to work with this kind of technology don't have to invent it from scratch. They can actually take the stuff, tweak it to their needs. It's almost, you know, it's it's a very, well, I mean, it's a very modular approach. It's really innovative. Yeah. Uh, Qualcomm was also working on neuromorphic chips for for sort of learning machines, right? Yeah, they were looking at it. Um, in fact, still are. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a program called the Zeroth program uh zeroth after the asimov asimov zeroth yeah. law of robotics yeah which is uh cause no harm to humanity nor allow humanity to come to harm that's sort of the the principle behind law number one which is don't harm a person yeah yeah this in this case it's saying don't harm people in general like all of people don't do any harm to them so Qualcomm's approach isn't necessarily to protect humanity. That, yeah, you know, that's not the that's not the issue here. <laughs> Maybe a little bit grandiose. Yeah, their 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 goal is to make a large scale commercial platform for neuromorphic computing. So they want to incorporate this into things like handheld devices, so they can recognize certain things, or maybe even wearables, stuff like medical uh, uh, phenomena, like anything that it could detect that something's going wrong with a patient, it could alert you, or just you know, uh, context aware sort of stuff. Was it Qualcomm that created the, the learning rolling robot? I think mm. it was a along the same lines as the Pong game. Mm. So you had, uh, the, the computer based on neuromorphic technology that, that learned how to play Pong without being told, uh, there was a company, I believe it was Qualcomm that used neuro neuromorphic technology to get a robot to figure out where to go in a room without telling it where to go. It's the same kind of principle. They just let it roll around, and when it went to the right 
colored tiles on the floor, they give it positive feedback and say, yeah, that's right. That's what you want to do. Yeah. So in this case, you're looking at like a device that could give you uh, notifications and and uh, advice in certain situations. Like if you've ever heard of Google Now, which is a, a uh, an option on Android phones, Android <laughs> devices where you get actually I think iOS might even have it now as well. But I know Android does because that's what I have. It brings up little things based upon things like your your browsing uh, history. So as long as I'm logged into a a Chrome browser and I'm browsing around, it starts to keep track of that stuff, and it might let me know contextually when that stuff would become important. Let, let's say that I did some uh, research on a place that I want to go and visit sometime. It might pull up more information that I could use to look into that. It's kind of in that semantic web approach. But this is all done on the back end for Google, right? This is all done in the cloud. So what Qualcomm is looking at is creating these neuromorphic machines that would actually be doing it natively on the device itself, not being related out to some cloud computing network of 16,000 computers, but rather happening in real time in your hand at that moment. Along the same lines, bioengineers at Stanford University have developed a circuit board based on the brain synapse structure that they're calling the NeuroGrid. It, mm. it, it contains 16 custom-designed chips that together, they say, can simulate one million neurons and billions of, of synapse connections. The The whole thing is about the size and energy efficiency of an iPad. Um, and... They they say it's about a hundred thousand times more energy efficient than a regular computer simulation of of that many neurons, but still way less efficient than the human brain. Um, you know, which contains about eighty thousand times more neurons than that and runs on just three times as much power. Mm. So, but it's really cool. And and right now they're they're focusing on the goal of giving researchers who are working in robotic prostheses tools that they can use to, to simulate human reactions without needing to know intimately how the brain works. You know, let those let those people focus on the robotics programming that they're really good at and let this machine translate in that into a quick and efficient commands. That's interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So so the robotic prosthetic can actually learn. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, or, or you know that that it can it can think the way that your brain does, so that it can you know help you solve that problem of picking up a cup, which is an incredibly easy thing for a human person right. to do, but really difficult for a robot to or, determine. Or maintaining your balance if it's right. like a robotic leg, sure. Uh, which again, something that as long as uh, you know, as long as you're not impaired in some way, is fairly easy for a person to do, assuming you're on level ground and everything. But can be tricky if you are, you know, if you have to wear a prosthetic. So interesting stuff. I mean, really taking over the fact, you know, we talked about embodied cognition in the last podcast and the idea that that our our thinking could extend beyond our brains, that it incorporates the entire uh, nervous system, which stretches through our entire body. Well, if you are missing a limb, clearly that would mean that, you know, with a prosthetic, you're replacing that you have to build that kind of intelligence into the limb if you expect to have the same sort of utility as the Any lost kind of limb. functionality. Yeah, right, yeah. sure. Uh, granted, you know, this this one single device that they've got right now costs some $40,000 to build, but the team thinks that it could be mass manufactured for one one hundredth of that, like 400 bucks a pop. That's pretty impressive. Well, how about we try a different approach? So we talked about neuromorphic machines. What about synaptic transistors? Have you guys heard about these? Oh, yeah. So this is this super... This is a Harvard project, right? Yeah. Uh, Harvard project. It's uh, some light reading. 
you know, if you want to read through the Harvard project, it's, it's a little dense, but here's the, here's the takeaway. So the neural networks and the neuromorphic transistors are both attempting to do the same thing just at different scales, which is to uh, simulate the relationship between neurons in the nervous system yeah. and, and to try and take advantage of that relationship, the way that they communicate with each other. But Jonathan, through what do those neurons communicate? <laughs> through the synapses. Uh, the synapses is, uh, again, the, uh, the little gap between one neuron and the other neuron yeah. where you're having the information pass from one cell to the next. So a synaptic transistor isn't just simulating neurons. What they're trying to do is simulate the actual process through which neurons pass information. So it's not the relationship that they're, they're aiming at. They're not building synthetic neurons that'll behave like biological neurons. They're building synthetic synapses and they are still dependent upon things like you know, ion exchanges, except we're talking about oxygen now instead of sodium and potassium. So, uh, the other thing that's really interesting in this, and this is where you can really bl break away from the, the von Neumann architecture, is that you're no longer dependent upon a on or off state for your base unit. You know, your your binary unit, your zero or one can either be of those uh, two states and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, this could actually have a whole spectrum because it's dependent upon the conductance. So it's like the strength of a connection, sort of? Well... Not strength. We're talking, you know, conductance. It's 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 the ability to conduct electricity. And the conductance of these syn uh, synaptic transistors can actually change. And it's an analog continuous change. So think of it like a sine wave. And it could be the value of that particular state could be anything along that sine wave. So not just a zero or a one, but anything along that entire wave. It's kind of the same way if you think about it that uh, the qubit, the quantum bit, of quantum computers is said to be both zero and one at the same time and all values in between, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, intuitively, but it's kind of similar to that. This idea that it would allow us to have a completely different approach to computer science. It would, uh, it would require a lot of different work to really make this useful. I mean, it's the, the possibilities are, are pretty phenomenal, but it does mean that you're not, programming the way anyone has programmed up to this point using uh, the traditional computer sciences. So very exciting, very weird. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll do a link. I'll try and write up a, a blog post with a link to the Harvard article because, you know, it's, it goes into a lot more depth um, and it's very difficult to summarize in a way that doesn't trivialize it. Um, and I, I certainly don't have the expertise to go into a lot of depth on the subject without stepping in lots of holes and, and, <laughs> and revealing my ignorance. Uh, speaking of holes, yeah, I think we should talk about whole brain oh, no. simulations. That's a pun. Oh, Joe. I'm so proud of I you. I feel like Jonathan. I feel betrayed. I should shave my head and be mean to everybody. <laughs> I'll teach you the ukulele later. Uh, yeah, so there are quite a few simulated brain projects that have happened, but, uh, but two or that are in the process of happening. There have actually been a few different, uh, attempts at simulating the brain. Most of them are ongoing. Um, I'd know, imagine, I mean, this is not something we can do yet. No, I mean, we've seen some projects that simulated part of a brain, as in like a, a, a collection of neurons that would, represent just a fraction of the brain. 
But even then, you're talking about on a time scale that stretches into days for, uh, that would match up like, to seconds in an actual brain. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I know one that I read about years ago. It must have been going on for a long time was the Blue Brain Project. Yeah. Uh, it's a reverse engineering effort. Really, it's meant to understand more about the brain uh, more than anything else. Yeah. So, well, I think a lot of these whole brain things are. Yeah. So it's not necessarily let's make a computer that can think like a brain. It's oh, like, yeah. Let's, no, that's, that's a far future step. Right now, they're kind of like, let's learn some stuff. Yeah. Let's learn what the brain Let's learn what the brain do. That's really what it comes down to. So uh, they're looking at synthesizing a mammalian brain, specifically human brain, down to the molecular <laughs> level. You, you, you just no, catching up. To I was the, just thinking what the whole do. idea of like recreating a whole brain and what it does. It's like, congratulations, you have synthesized compulsive behavior <laughs> and confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good job. Well, their goals also include reconstructing the human brain and building a virtual brain in a supercomputer. It began, the project began back in 2005. And uh, each simulated neuron requires the power of uh, a laptop computer. Not necessarily <laughs> meaning that a neuron is a laptop computer, but that's the, it's the equivalent to a laptop computer to simulate a single neuron. Uh, so it successfully created a virtual model of a rat cortical column. That's a collection of about 10,000 neurons. Uh, now, these are the basic unit of a cortex. So according to the team, a single rat cortical column might be devoted to a whisker. So wow. every whisker hey. on a rat would have its own dedicated cortical column. But that's progress. A yeah. whisker. We have solved the equation of life. Yeah. <laughs> Now, another project, the human... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to downplay their success. I mean, that that's pretty cool. It is cool. It, is, it does illustrate how far we have to go. To right. get it's to, one of those one small step kind of situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those things where you really realize how big a problem this is, how big a challenge it is. The Human Brain Project is another one. This one launched in 2013 at a conference in Switzerland. And the project is expected to cost a total of around $1.6 billion. It's a joint effort of the entire European Union. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not something that is just being taken on by a, you know, a, a guy, guy in a dream and a song in his heart and a brain on his drawing board. Now, at any rate, it's, um, <laughs> the very first decade of this project is just dedicated to learning more about the human brain and how we see, think, learn and all that before we try and build the the computer model of it. Because uh, the argument is that we could try and go about building the building blocks and then putting it all together. But without this understanding of what's going on inside our brains, uh, it's not very meaningful. It's almost, you know, it's, it's not quite as bad, but it's almost like you open up a a, a a door that's going to be your new office and your new house. And you throw in a bunch of transistor chips and, and cords and a monitor and a keyboard and you close the door and you think, I have a computer now. Huh. It's not, not, no. no, it's not doing anything meaningful yet. So, uh, over here in the U S um, we've got the brain initiative. That's the brain research through advancing, innovating neurotechnologies initiative. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, rolls. I love those acronyms. Rolls right off the tongue. Um, it, it's a it's a one billion dollar project with a primary focus on the ways that individual cells and and complex neural circuits interact in both space and time. Um, so it's so, wibbly wobbly. 
Yeah. So, so it's talking about the, the architecture and the signal paths within mm-hmm. the brain right now. Um, uh, the initiative was announced in April of 2013, and it's being run by collaborative efforts from the National Institutes of Health, DARPA, and the National Science Foundation. They've got a kind of crazy collaboration coming up with the Human Brain Project, like, they just announced it this March and they haven't announced what they're collaborating on, but it's cool that everyone's playing together. So I think that's really cool, but I also have a kind of weird, spooky, semi-philosophical question about what it means to create or simulate a whole human brain. Because we've talked before on this podcast about the question of whether an artificial intelligence program that seems to act like a person actually has consciousness. What we mean is like, you know, an experience. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as what it's like to be that program? And should it have rights? Should we have considerations for it? Right. Now, we don't generally worry about this. It just doesn't, you know, we have no way to prove it doesn't have a conscious existence, but it just doesn't seem like it intuitively to us. Yeah, it's not like when that IBM neuromorphic transistor is playing Pong that it suddenly gets mad if you beat it. Yeah. It doesn't like slam the, the paddle to one side <laughs> or to the other. Or... Well, and even if it did, I mean, you could think about that. Well, yeah, that's its programmed behavior. You know, yeah. that that's how it's behaving. But you don't think that these programs are actually having an experience that deserves recognition. I wonder, though. If we're able to simulate a whole brain, especially if we are able to simulate it physically somehow, that seems to be getting closer to the realm where I'd wonder, wait a second, are we creating something that's mm-hmm. having a conscious experience? And, I, mean, and, I mean, there's, could, we don't know, but. Or could that emerge from that kind of hardware? Yeah, that's wetware, exactly I suppose. what I mean. I mean, so we don't know what the origin of consciousness is. Mm-hmm. We think that, you know, mammals with complex brains uh, and m- more advanced thinking seem to exhibit it. We don't really know anybody has it except us. We just have to assume they probably I'm do. I'm not I mean, sure about myself some days, honestly. I'm not sure well, about you either. Oh, and by us, I don't mean like our species. Yeah, I mean like the, 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 the solipsism problem. It's like, I know I have a conscious experience. You can't prove anybody else does. You just have to assume they do. Oh, sure. right, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. What do y'all think about that? If we build a brain that works in a one-for-one way exactly like a real organic brain, is there such a thing as what it's like to be that synthetic brain? That's an impossible question to answer right now because we have not done that. And so, and we don't fully understand consciousness as far as it applies to us. So being able to answer that question, it would essentially be total guesswork. Well, although, I mean, to to create something like that, you would technically be having to create a body like like we talked about in our first podcast. Your your neural network is a lot more than just your brain meets. Um, You've got a lot of other neurons and and it's tied pretty intrinsically or, or so a lot of thought goes into into what you touch and what you taste and how you feel and your body temperature. So in order to create a one-for-one simulation, we would need to create a body for it. And at that point, I think absolutely there is an experience of being that machine. Well, and, well I mean, you could you could have it have an intelligence that's just not a human intelligence or not human-like. So if you did make it a completely disembodied brain type thing, uh, you could have it where it has some form of intelligence. It just wouldn't necessarily be... Uh, be be comparable to a human experience because, like you point out, we have the body, the the whole embodied cognition 
theory uh, approach that would not apply to something that doesn't have that kind of input, uh, which might just mean that you have a computer that won't stop screaming. But uh, I mean, I don't I, I honestly don't know the answer because I, personally, I think if I get down to like what my personal beliefs are, I think that the mind is completely dependent upon physical matter is the whole nervous system approach. And so therefore, if you were to be able to completely simulate uh, the nervous system of a complex living being, uh, I don't, I don't see why you, there couldn't be some form of experience or consciousness within that synthetic being. Yeah. I, I, I think that's sort of entailed by the belief. If you have a basically physical idea about what the mind is, as long as you don't believe in wonder tissue or you don't think that there's something magic happening in the brain, you ha- you really do have to wonder like, man, if, if we're synthetically putting together a material construction, that's pretty much like what brains do it may very well be having an experience. There may very well be what it's like to be this computer. Maybe. I mean, it's hard to say. Like, I think we wouldn't be able to identify it until it was as close to us as we could possibly make it, well, including that entire body yeah. experience. Oh, right up until, you know, it says like, hey, stop poking me right. or hey, I am <laughs> self-aware or hey, share your pizza right. or hey, hey, really, seriously, I don't want to go in the maze again. <laughs> I know the way out. Stop. How do you me. share your pizza with the synthetic brain? Uh, fairly, because <laughs> that sucker's going to know if you end up giving it the small piece. Please separate my hemispheres and cram that hot pizza right in between them and then seal it back up. Honestly, yeah. that's what I want to do with pizza sometimes. That sounds just delicious. Stick it I, into I the middle of right, the brain. Right, right in So there. the cheese kind of pools up yeah, over the cerebellum. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. No, yeah. I just I have it's all a, melty right up in there. I have a different point of, of that I would like to talk about before we sign off here, which is, do you think, is it possible, and I expect it is, that building computers that can work like a brain, you know, whether you call it thinking or not, they work like a brain, that they're more energy efficient. Do you think that we'll end up seeing those type of computers being very good for things that we talked about, like uh, recognizing visual representations, audio, all the sensory stuff, uh, recognizing patterns, that kind of thing. It'll be good at that. Do you think that they will lag behind traditional computers with the things that traditional computers are really good at? In other words, like a quantum computer, a quantum computer is really good at uh, solving parallel problems, but not a classical computer serialized problem. So I wonder, because, you know, our our brains are really good at this other stuff and computers aren't. Right. I wonder if the computer version of our brains will also be really good at what we do, but lousy at what <laughs> traditional computers do. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, g- computers are the way they are, or one of the reasons they are the way they are is that they're they're qu- quantized. You know, they're dealing with specific quantities of digital data, mm-hmm. and our brains just don't work that way. I mean, we can do math, but we're we're still juggling concepts. Yeah, it's all roly poly up in there. It's, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a series of equations that we're solving. I mean, yeah, I it, mean it is, but yeah, it, well, it's fuzzy. It's fuzzy, and and that fuzziness is a is a good thing. Um. Because it is what allows us, like we were talking about earlier, to deal with like your brain can actually deal with a picture. It doesn't have to turn as far as we know, it doesn't have to turn the picture into a bitmap. Yeah. You can just look at it and and for all we can tell, what's happening is, okay, that's a lamp. Well, I mean, not just a picture, but looking at the world around us. Yeah. I mean, 
same sort of thing is that it's not it's not turning everything around us into ones and zeros. Uh, I mean, that's the way any sort of computer that's using a camera ultimately that's digitizing that information, uh, you know, it's it's same sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. well, interesting. you know, I, yeah, I, I would say that we're, you know, this is not going to be a replacement for the kind of computers that we have right now. But but the computers that we have right now are really good at, you know, playing cat videos and uh, running tax software. And that's not what we would ask this other kind of computer to do. No. Yeah. We yeah. would ask the other computer to be our friend. Or at least to help us recognize more pictures of, you know, whatever it is we're interested in. To wench with us about taxes and find the cool cat videos for us. Oh, right. Yeah, well, at least it knows. to invent the concept of a cat over and over and <laughs> it over. It does make me over. wonder if that Google Google computer just became obsessed with YouTube and just started watching <laughs> cat videos all day long. Yeah. Um, if so, what a terrible thing we have brought into this world, and it must be stopped. This is what an angry young man ranting into his webcam looks like. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, no shortage of that. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that we've uh, wrapped up this topic for the the sake of my sanity. But uh, yeah, if you guys have any suggestions for future topics that we should cover here on Forward Thinking, maybe there's something about the future you've always wanted to know more about, or you're curious if a particular science fiction technology has any basis in science fact, uh, let us know. Send us an email. Our address is fwthinking at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. Our handle at all three is fwthinking, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. 
like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.